Welcome to the first session of what will be an eight-week study of the Psalms, Truthful Speech as Common Prayer. There's a quotation that's attributed to the early church father, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, which says, the glory of God is man fully alive. Now, when I first heard that quotation, I felt in myself this excitement, this kind of, I want to be fully alive. But in our society, such a statement needs a good bit of unpacking. It can often be this idea of being fully alive, confused with a kind of religion of self-fulfillment and material success. Our template as Christians for being fully alive is Jesus himself. And Jesus's life was hardly a success according to at least a worldly point of view. And not only that, it was full of conflict and enemies, and in the end, betrayal and death. Now, of course, the resurrection was on the other side of that, but he had to go through those things first. How could Jesus have been so fully alive if his life was marked by such conflict and difficulty? How could he have so completely entrusted himself to God when faced with trials and difficulties like this? Well, one of the ways, at least in my mind, that Jesus did this was by knowing and undoubtedly praying the Psalms. Jesus himself quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book in his recorded ministry in the Gospels, suggesting that his formation was so influenced by the Psalms that they were just part of his vocabulary for life. The reformer John Calvin once called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul because in them, he says, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And as we learn to lay these emotions truthfully before God in prayer, both in our private prayer lives, in our gathered worship, as we learn to pray the Psalms, I think we will indeed find ourselves more fully alive and growing more and more in Christ-likeness. So let's begin our study of the Psalms with a question. And I think this question is especially important for those who come from a different tradition other than Anglicanism, where the Psalms are not regularly prayed. And this is the question, how do I pray someone else's prayers, especially ones written so long ago in such a different time and space? How could they possibly have any meaning for us today? For example, it's pretty easy to see how Psalm 23 can be so accessible to us. It's such a comfort to pray in times of need or even in times where there are no needs. That beautiful imagery of the Lord as our shepherd watching over us, taking care of us, the still waters that he leads us by, watching over us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death in the presence of danger and uncertainty. It's easy to see why that one is so accessible. But what do we do with something like Psalm 137, which begins with a very historical kind of reference by the waters of Babylon, which is a reference to Israel's captivity in Babylon. And then it ends with these really quite revolting lines about how blessed are those who bash their babies against the rocks, talking about the Babylonians. Didn't Jesus teach us to love and pray for our enemies? It's that issue, the Psalms, distant, historical, cultural, even emotional context that can cause difficulty for us and causes these psalms to be kind of unwieldy. How do we get a handle on them so that we can pray all of them 
as a part of our prayer life so that they have meaning for us today. One solution to this challenge of the Psalms is simply to be selective about those Psalms that we choose to focus on. Those that we pray privately, those that we memorize, and those that we even use in corporate worship. Memorable and well-known Psalms like Psalm 23 that I just mentioned, or Psalm 121, or Psalm 139 come to mind. Again, it's easy to see how these can have a resonance with us today. But the main issue with this selective approach is that, well, if you look in our prayer book, it doesn't really allow us to be that selective. If you look in the lectionary in the back of our 2019 Book of Common Prayer, you'll notice that every single psalm is prayed and used in our daily office. In fact, if you go back through church history, this very decidedly unselective way of praying straight through the psalms has always been a part of the church's practice. So again, how can we find meaning in all of the psalms? Not just the ones that are easier for us to access, but all of the psalms. I'd like to propose two handles, if you will, to help us get a good hold on the entire Psalter so that we can use them all more effectively as prayer. First, we need to have a grasp on just the nature of the psalms. What are they in their essence? And how can that help us wield them better as prayer? And then we'll look to, secondly, that second handle, at the types of psalms there are in the Psalter. What are the genres? And we'll see how that can help us get our minds around using them better as prayer. So first, let's start with this broader bird's eye view and look at the nature of the psalms. There's at least three qualities found in the psalms that will help us on using them better in our prayer lives. To begin with, the psalms are prayer. Now, at first, it may seem just a little too obvious to make such a statement, but it's important to note that often, if you're like me at least, I'm more willing to talk about God than I am willing to talk to Him. When we seek to engage God in prayer, often our minds wander. We are faced with our shortcomings. We're distracted, and prayer just becomes laborious, and we quit. And so, we content ourselves to just talk about Him with other people and even with ourselves. But the Psalms resist these kinds of discussions. As Eugene Peterson writes, the Psalms are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to Him. So the Psalms are prayer. They are there in Scripture. They're there in our prayer books and they shape and they train us in how to interact with God. Next, the Psalms are poetry. Now, we'll have more to say exactly about how the Psalms are poetic in future sessions, but for now it's important to note what poetry is and what it does. Often when we hear the word poetry, we think of something that's extra or not necessary to the day-to-day -day realities of life. But in reality, poetry serves a very important role in our lives. It teaches us to see and to perceive. Its job is not so much to inform as it is to reveal. As C.S. Lewis writes in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, the Psalms are poems 
Not doctrinal treatises, nor even sermons. The Psalms must be read with all the emotional rather than logical connections, which are proper to lyric poetry. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. And so, what do the Psalms help us see? Well, they help us see more clearly the God of Holy Scripture. But in addition, they also help us see what life lived with and before this God is like. Our spiritual senses are so often dulled by the busyness of life, by schedules and social media and binging Netflix, that we need the poetry of the Psalms with all its emotional connections, as C.S. Lewis says, to shock us back into an awareness of God's majesty and His power and His presence. And the poetry of the Psalms helps us do that. Now lastly, not only are the Psalms prayer, and not only are they poetry, but lastly, they are not polite. Now as Westerners trained in kind of a cool-headed rationality as we are, the raw emotions presented in the Psalms can cause us confusion. As I mentioned earlier with Psalm 137, there's a lot of talk in the Psalms about wishing bad things for enemies, and aren't we called to pray for our enemies and love them? There are things in the Psalms that can be revulsive to us. Again, bashing babies against the rocks? How dare the psalmist say something like that? Or they can just be kind of embarrassing, just lots of emotion being spilled out on the page. And we just think, get a hold of yourself, psalmist. But again, these harder psalms are there. They are there in Scripture. They're there in our prayer books. And if we faithfully learn how to pray them, they will train us in how to respond to God. So what do we do with this lack of politeness in many of these harder psalms? Well, in the words of the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis, these harder psalms allow us to bring our entire selves into the presence of God for Him to transform and heal us. Davis writes, The psalms enable us to bring into conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. The point of the shocking psalms is not to sanctify what is shameful or to make us feel better about parts of ourselves that stand in need of change. Rather, the psalms teach us that profound change happens always in the presence of God. So do you want to be changed? Do you want to grow in your Christ-likeness and be fully alive? Then learn to pray the psalms, even the ones that lack that politeness that as Westerners we're so used to. So just to review, our first handle to help us get a good hold on the Psalms so that we can use them as prayer is the nature of the Psalms. The Psalms are prayer. They are poetry, but they're not polite. Our second and final handle is the genres of the Psalms, the types of Psalms. And there are three main types that I want to focus on in this study. And these will be the ones that we focus on for the remainder of our sessions. The first are the Psalms of Wisdom, the second, the Psalms of Lament, and lastly, the Psalms of Praise. Now, most of us, I think, when we consider the Psalms, we think of the Psalms of Praise. For example, look at these lines from Psalm 29. 
Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. When we imagine what the Psalms do, this, I think, is where our minds go. This exulting in God's majesty and His glory. But interestingly, according to some estimations at least, the vast majority of psalms are lament psalms. Some 55, more than one-third of the psalms are songs that express grief and complaint and despair, sorrow for sin and repentance, whereas about 45 are considered psalms of praise. This suggests to me, at least, that our negative experiences and emotions are as important to bring before God and lay before Him as our positive ones. But more on that in just a minute. Let's begin with the Psalms of Wisdom. The Wisdom Psalms are interesting because they don't often offer praise to God and many of them are not even addressed to God as prayer, but they're addressed to you and me, the listener or the reader or the prayer of those Psalms. So why are they in the Psalter? Well, according to St. Athanasius, another early church father, he once wrote that in the Psalter, we find everything that's included elsewhere in the Old Testament. Law, wisdom, prophecy. It's all there in the Psalter as well. And we shouldn't be surprised to find this wisdom literature there because it was an important part of Israel's liturgical and worshiping life. So what are the wisdom psalms then? Well, psalms are considered wisdom psalms because of their similarities to the other wisdom literature found in the Old Testament. Take, for example, the Proverbs. And as one of the major themes of those wisdom literature books in the Old Testament, we often find this contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked and the outcome of following both of those ways. The point of this theme of these two ways found in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and in the wisdom Psalms is to provide something essential, elemental, needed in the lives of those who use and pray the Psalms. It's something that we might call in the words of Bishop Robert Barron, spiritual physics. After Buzz Aldrin returned to earth and his fame grew for becoming the second person to walk on the moon, he began to struggle with depression and alcohol. And in 1979, on the 10th anniversary of the moon landing, he gave an interview where he discussed his recovery from depression and alcohol, and he said these words, Just as there are physical laws that govern material objects, I believe there are spiritual laws that govern the behavior and the relationships between human beings. We can be in tune with these laws and harmonious with these laws and accepting of them, or we can be in opposition to them. And if we are in opposition to them, then generally we are not very happy. This is spiritual physics at its core. Just as there are natural laws that govern the universe, so are there spiritual laws that govern our lives. If we live according to God's law, we live in tune with the way He has made things to work best. 
the way that leads to life and peace. But if we ignore those laws, like the person who chooses to ignore the law of gravity, our lives will end in disaster. This is the message of the Wisdom Psalms, and it provides a stability from which to start our prayer lives. It gives us a set of expectations for how we can anticipate life to work best. Now, the next type of psalm is the psalm of lament. These psalms, as I said earlier, make up over one-third of the Psalter. Now, though this is true, we shouldn't come away from this study believing or assuming that lament is what we're made to do, that somehow lament is a more authentic way of living. We weren't made for lament. We were made for praise, to live in wonder, in awe of God's majesty and beauty and goodness. We're made to offer up sacrifices of praise to God. But life sometimes gets in the way. Sometimes we are challenged by the realities of loss, betrayal, or hurt. The good news is even those experiences and the emotions they evoke can be brought before God in prayer. And the Psalms show us how to do that. They train us in how to do that. But again, as I've already mentioned, these are those psalms, the lament psalms, that can be a little off-putting to us. They strike our Western kind of modern, cool-headed sensibilities as a little peculiar or even harsh or even hard to swallow. They can be impolite. They violate so many of the norms we assume to be normal for us whether it's the psalmist kind of talking about himself too much, using all these first-person pronouns, I and me and my, or just complaining, or even accusing of God of not showing up when he was supposed to be there to rescue them. These psalms can strike us as ill-mannered or undignified. But what's important for us to see here is that in the face of loss or disaster, the psalmists enter fully into those experiences and do not insist on relentlessly affirming some it will all be okay in the end kind of message. We see this especially in these final verses from Psalm 88. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness." Now, these are some pretty dark lines, and that's where Psalm 88 ends. There's no turn toward light. There's no turn toward redemption. So what do we do with that? Well, once again, the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis gives us some wisdom here. She says that when we learn to lament in good faith, that is, when we learn to honestly acknowledge the darkness around us and sometimes what's in us, in this way, we begin to open ourselves to God honestly and fully, no matter what we have to say. And when we do that, we begin to clear the way for praise. In other words, faithful lament, honestly acknowledging the darkness and what's bad around and in us, will clear the way for faithful praise. 
Often we assume God demands our praise and expects it from us even when we don't feel like praising, even when we're in the depths of despair or angry about injustices we see in the world. But what the Psalms show us, what they teach us, is when we pray them faithfully, we will be trained in how to bring our complaints and our sorrows and the darkness around us before God, expecting Him to hear, and in doing so, expecting Him also to create the circumstances, to create the conditions where once again, we will bring praise to Him. Again, we weren't made for lament. This is, lament is not somehow some more authentic way of living, but because of the brokenness in the world and in ourselves that we encounter daily, often the only way to be faithful in our praising is by first faithfully lamenting our sorrows. Now, our final type of psalm for these genres of psalms is the psalm of praise, this type of psalm that probably most of us are most familiar with. And as I just mentioned, as we make our way through lament, honestly laying our wounds, our hurts, our sins before God, we are prepared for praise. We see this in the Psalter where many of the praise psalms praise God for provision or rescue. Consider these first two verses from Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. So in this case, praise and thanksgiving are offered to God for what he does for his rescue, for provision. But there are other psalms that praise God simply for who he is. Take, for example, Psalm 33, where we read these lines. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. For ancient Israel's neighbors, for example, Babylon, who we mentioned earlier, creation happened through an act of violence and chaos where rival gods fought each other for supremacy of the universe. But Israel's God, the one true unchallenged God, simply spoke everything into existence. And we see that here in this psalm. He is without rival. He is without challenge. And his word brings order and life as he rules supremely. We see this in these lines from Psalm 33. They praise God for being that kind of God, one that is not made in a human image, but is truly other and different from what he has made. But it's important to remember that even with these praise psalms that praise God for simply who He is, they are prayed within that broader context, this broader movement of the psalms from wisdom to lament to praise, a movement that is fully aware of the difficulties of life. I emphasize this because even these praise psalms, these psalms that praise God simply for who He is, His majesty and His glory. These are not born out of some 
mere optimism that's blissfully immune of the hardships of life, but they're born out of a full awareness that the God who speaks life into the darkness at the beginning of all things, He continues to speak life in the darkness today, in the darkness we see in the world, the darkness we see in our own hearts, just as He did in the life of Jesus Christ when He lay in the darkness of the empty tomb. Jesus, who is our template for what it means to be fully alive. So, as we close and as we make our way through these coming sessions, may we be taken deeper into the Psalms as our own prayer book, as the prayer book that will train us in how to respond to God. And may these Psalms help us develop in our own life of faith, mature in our full humanity, and glorify God with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength.